Well, good morning. Have you had a great summer? Uh, <laughs> I was joking. I knew you'd do that. <laughs> Half of you were supposed to be here first service, and you all slept in and waited for this service. I know what's going on. Uh, regardless of the uh, dreariness of the summer, we serve a great God, and we're here to worship Him. And we're here not to remind Him of anything He doesn't know, but to remind ourselves of what we need to know. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pray and ask for His help as we go to the Word. Father, we know that you give us what is good and what we need. You give us what is best. Um, we can trust in you. Uh, Father, you have spared nothing from us. Um, you have given us your best in this created world. You've given us your best in the inspired word of God. You have given us your best supremely in your son Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. You've given us your best in sending the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, to entwell us and empower us to live life uh, as you intended. And so, Father, this morning we want to give you our best. We want to give you our best praise as we sing. We want to give you our best attention as we worship in the study of your word. We want to give you our best obedience as we uh, listen to what your Holy Spirit would prompt us to do. So we give you our best now. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd open your Bibles to John 12, that's where we are. We're finishing the second half of that chapter, starting at verse 20, and uh, we'll go on to verse 50 there. And uh, while you're finding that, uh, I want to give you some phrases that uh, kind of came to mind as I was reading this passage. The tipping point, the straw that broke the camel's back, the last straw. Or the watershed moment. And the title of the message this morning is the moment of truth. And all of these expressions sort of communicate the same idea that something can exist in a certain status for even a long period of time. And then suddenly even a small catalyst can bring about and create a dynamic change. Uh, and even though that trigger itself can be very, very small or seemingly insignificant... Uh, the change that it can initiate can be absolutely massive. Uh, we see this, in the, see this phenomenon in the natural world. Uh, we see pressure that might build slowly uh, under the earth, invisible to the naked eye, and, and then uh, a certain threshold is reached. The tension must release, and, and plates under our earth, un, uh, un, underground, slip, and a massive earthquake occurs. Uh, or an avalanche finally gives way. Uh, or a hillside is saturated with just one drop too much, right? Just one too many drops. And finally, the hillside that's been waiting there ready to go, uh, goes. Uh, we see even in the crust of the earth that can only handle so much pressure, even as it would build up and rise up uh, and, and form a mountain, even eventually the top of that mountain can blow clean off when the pressure builds to such a point. And even an expecting mom can carry that baby just so long until the body says, get out, <laughs> right? It's time to come forth. And we actually, we sort of see this kind of a thing here uh, as we go into John chapter 12. We see this kind of moment occur in the ministry of Christ. And, and amazingly to me, it seems like a really insignificant trigger uh, that occurs here. But it sets in motion the hour predicted and appointed since the fall. It's just a very quiet, seemingly innocuous event. Uh, 
but it triggers the moment we've been waiting for. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus has frequently said, my time has not yet come, right? We've heard this again and again. My time has not yet come. And then suddenly a conversation ensues in which Jesus responds, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And so that's what we're going to look at here. What actually triggered this thing? What happened such that the hour has come? Look at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, it's strange to me that it's the arrival of these these Greeks that sort of trigger this appointed time because it doesn't seem like a very significant event, right? We've seen the triumphal entry. We've seen people respond and praise thinking that this is God's Messiah. He's here. You would think that would sort of inaugurate it. Uh, We've seen the raising of the dead. There were witnesses to this. Lazarus was raised from the grave. You would expect that that might trigger sort of this particular hour. Uh, You've seen Jesus go into the temple and cleanse the temple. That happened right about this same point. And you think that might be the big moment. But, But it's actually none of those. It seems mysteriously that it's a conversation with these Greek visitors. In fact, the conversation doesn't even happen, or at least it's not told to us. We're simply told that they came looking for Jesus. And for, I don't know about for, for you, but for me, it makes me go, well, who are these guys? You know, and why is, why is this the event that triggers this hour that has been waited for? What we understand is that these are God-fearing Gentiles who had come to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh during the Passover. And this was not an uncommon thing. In fact, the temple was even designed to accommodate this. I have a picture here for you to look at of the temple, or at least an artist's rendering of it. And if you look carefully, you can kind of see around, around the, central issue, uh, the central area here, we see this almost like a barricade, this perimeter around it. And on the outside part of this barricade, we have this area, which is known as the Court of the Gentiles. In other words, Gentiles are non-Jewish people who wanted to come and worship Yahweh, could in fact do that, but only to a point. They were, they were limited. Can you imagine if we had a barrier outside that said, hey, we're glad you came to worship, but if you're from Ninana, you can only come this far. <laughs> you know, No offense, but you know, this is it. And, but that's kind of the way things were. And um, they were granted access, although it was a little bit in a limited fashion here. Um, in fact, crossing that, that boundary uh, was done upon pain of death. You know, I, I'm not sure there's much you could do in this church that would bring about that penalty for you. Um, the impression that we get if we kind of look at this, I mean, again, it's somehow the arrival of these Greeks showing up looking for Christ. Somehow the conditions have been met. Somehow the hour of Christ's glorification has come. And, and you get the impression that it is maybe the pseudo-worship of the triumphal entry, the cleansing of the temple, contrasted with Mary's and Martha's beautiful worship, and then the arrival of, of these Greeks, these folks outside of Judaism looking for Christ. You get the sense that it's almost the complex of things that 
provide the tipping point. The conditions are just right. In other words, the Jewish rejection of Jesus is at its pinnacle. It's reached a threshold. And simultaneously, the message of Christ has gotten out now to the Gentile world, such that they're coming to look for Jesus. And I would tell you, this is good news for you and for me. Uh, These are sort of some of our prototype folks that have access to Christ. Um, Earlier in John's gospel, we have seen Jesus refer to his ministry to this people, that his ministry would extend to sheep who are not of this fold. And I told you at that time, he's referring to Gentiles there. And those that were scattered children, same kind of thing. And so we've frequently heard Jesus say, my time has not yet come, but suddenly when God-fearing Gentiles come inquiring about Jesus, the hour of glorification is set into motion. Um, and their, their arrival and sort of the change that ensues here, it actually signals almost the closing of a chapter in Jesus' ministry. If you take your hand out and flip it over and look at the back, I've provided this for you. We've been looking at some of these charts for a long period of time. They're sort of benchmarks as we move through the gospel. And we see not only that the, the seven signs that, that are embedded in, in John's gospel have been sort of completed here. Uh, but at the very bottom, if you see, we talked about at the very beginning sort of the twofold uh, division of the book. There's first of all the book of signs, which completes here in John 12. And then we see the book of glory. In other words, Jesus' public ministry is coming to a close right here. And for the rest of the book, we see largely his private ministry to his, his disciples. But this hour of glorification, which sounds so great and sounds wonderful, well, it's just not what people are expecting. And so Jesus prepares them with some teaching. Uh, So look with me at verse 24. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And so what we see here is that Jesus is preparing people for what they did not expect, and he's going to teach them that he will, in fact, bring life through death. And that is what this hour of glorification is, because it gives the impression that something wonderful is going to happen. And indeed, it will be wonderful, but it will be shocking first. We've talked about the caricature of Christ uh, that the Jewish people had. They had a certain expectation, and when Jesus showed up, he just did not fit uh, their expectation. And the death of Christ is so incongruent that Jesus prepares his audience for his death with really a beautiful illustration, and he refers to this stalk of wheat and this seed in it that must die in order to multiply. Uh, Now, I don't have any history or any interaction with wheat Uh, whatsoever. I don't even like it in bread most of the time. I'm the white bread guy. So this is a hard illustration for me. But what did come to mind as I was thinking about this, because I grew up in California. Let the booing commence now. Yay, I got a yay. Did you hear that? Only one. Yeah, only one. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody once told me, you know, California is a good place to be from. And I thought, Okay, I can agree to that. Um, 
But at, but at our house in California, something my mom used to do is she would plant flowers around uh, our back patio, and it got lots of sun and lots of heat. And two flowers that do really well in California are poppies and marigolds, right? Marigolds are an interesting flower because they're beautiful and they're hardy and, and they seem to multiply pretty well, but they stink, right? Which I understand is the purpose of them. You plant them around your garden to repel insects and bugs that might otherwise damage it. Just a little bit of free gardening tips there. You know, this is a full service. service. And, um, but the other one that we would plant are poppies. And, uh, and those multiply really well too. But one of the things that we would do at the end of each season, each growing season, is we would go out and harvest the seeds. So in a marigold, many of you know this, you, you pluck the flower after its bloom has kind of gotten ugly. And, and uh, we used to just put them in, in little, little plastic baggies and let them dry out. And you can actually pull the flower out of the little husk and inside there are all these little black-headed seeds. And so we would collect these things. And we would do the same thing with the poppies. There were these little long pods and inside were lined up these little black seeds that for some reason we eat on muffins. I don't understand that. But um, those seeds are there. And so we would pull those out and we would harvest them and the next year we would plant them again. And the result was that each year the flower bed would grow. And it would grow out and it would get bigger and you'd have these beautiful orange vibrant colors and some of them smelled good and some of them didn't. But nevertheless, it grew. It expanded. It, and it went out from where it started. And Jesus speaks similarly about the life that will come through his death. As he gives his life and as he is put into the ground, so life comes through his death. So it is expanded. So it is given to others. So it is extended to you and to me that we might experience the life that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. But it was a contrast to what his followers were expecting. And then he goes a step further and he, he actually challenges his followers, in this, his followers in a similar way that they will find life through death to self is how I'll express it here. And so Jesus invites us actually to participate in this same kind of sacrifice. In other words, his invitation, the invitation here to follow Christ in this case is not just, not just an invitation to follow him with a life of imitation. Now that is certainly something that Jesus teaches. But what he is teaching is that there is a moment of response here. There is a death to self that we must enter into in order to follow him for our lifetime. And so he's calling for a specific decision, a specific action, a death to self and a living for God in his glory. It means we have to unseat that person who wants everything to center around us. We have to unseat that person in our life and say, you no longer get that throne. It is a surrender. It is a sacrifice. It is a death to self. And we are saying, Lord, I want you to take up occupancy and residency in my life. I want you to be the supreme being. I want you to be the rightful authority. I want everything in my life to be about and directed towards you and your glory. It is an unseating of who is Lord in our life. It is a death to self. And it is costly. Back in 1989, a popular movie came out, and, and some of you will remember this. Uh, it was called Dead Poets Society. Remember this? Uh, and, and sort of in this movie, there was an inspirational teacher that came along, and he began to teach an English class, and he brought poetry to 
uh, lives of some of these young men. And, and in particular, this phrase became sort of the mantra throughout the movie, and it was the Latin phrase, carpe diem, which means seize the day. And his message to them was that you have got to go for it in life. You've got to suck the marrow out of life is the way that he expressed it. Because we're not here that long and then our life is gone. And Jesus gives us the exact inverse to that message. He says, you don't have to suck the marrow out of this life. You have to relinquish control of this life. You have to quit striving and quit managing and quit working and quit earning and quit trying to do this thing on your own. In fact, you have to surrender this life in order to find the life that is truly life. In the best case scenario, these kids would go on living a hedonistic life and finding its emptiness. In the best case scenario for the Christian, we sacrifice, we give up something, we renounce something, we surrender it only to find life that is truly life and to find it for eternity. St. Augustine has said it maybe better than anybody else. He says, you have made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And I want to relate this to us. I think many, there are many people, maybe probably in the room this morning, that will, that are in the process of rejecting God in the name of freedom. And the desire to live without some kind of religious constraint. The thinking is, if we were to accept Christ as Savior and pursue a life of discipleship, well, then Jesus would really cramp my style. And it's, it's not that Christ himself is uh, a person that we deplore or that we, we find reprehensible, just maybe inconvenient. There's a sense among many youth today that is, I'm simply going to delay a life of discipleship for later. I'll get serious about Jesus later because right now I just want it to be about me. And what we find is that person who has that sentiment ends up so often finding themselves empty. And wanting and very likely in bondage to those things that they pursued in the name of freedom. And at this point, I want to be careful here because I don't, I don't want us to all sit here thinking that I'm talking about other people. It's so easy to sit in a service and listen to a sermon and think, I really wish Billy were here. I really wish, really wish that Susan were listening to this. And I want to get in your face. I really wish you would hear this, okay? A life of so-called freedom, life away from God, might seem easy, it might seem alluring, it might seem tempting, but it has great costs and it has great burdens. Um, coming to faith in Christ is a recognition, it's an acknowledgement that the author of life has some wise thing to say about how it ought to be lived. He is, after all, its maker, The example of Christ, what we see in Jesus and his manner of life, is not intended to cramp our style or limit our joy, but it was in fact intended to teach us and to show us how to live life as it was intended. He says as much in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. And I want to tell you, discipleship, Coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and following it up with a life of obedience and imitation is a costly venture. I'm not going to soft sell that to you. It's costly, but it pays rich dividends. 
It is a rich life. It is life as God meant it to be. And as we go on in this section here, we see that Jesus, he not only invites us into this kind of life to find life in him through this death to self, but he goes on to impress upon us the urgency and our need to do it now. And I'm going to come back to that in, in just a moment here, but that's what's coming. But another thing that shows up here is we see once again in Jesus' life and ministry that, that all that he does is for the glory of the Father. We see a selflessness consistently in Jesus' life. And we see this in verse 28 when he says, Father, glorify your name. Consistently throughout the gospel, we see Jesus giving honor to the Father. And I want to tell you that something that has been a bit of a burden and a bother to me throughout my lifetime and throughout my discipleship, uh, I know some of you probably appreciate that I bring to you some of my questions and my struggles, and some of you probably wish I'd just keep them to myself. But um, nevertheless, uh, you're hostage right now, so I get to share with you. One of the questions I've had in my lifetime kind of wrestling with the Lord on something is this, if the main objective of God is to bring glory and honor to himself, then why bother creating a world that could fall or that could rebel or that after all he knew would rebel? How does that bring glory to God to create a world that could and would do that? In other words, why the human experience? That's one of the questions I've wrestled with. And the answer that I've come to over the years in searching the scriptures is this, that if the Father... That God the Father is able to display aspects of his character and his nature and his magnificence that we would not otherwise see. We see them specifically through the rescue of fallen and rebellious mankind. In other words, we see a greater dimension of his wisdom such that he would put in place a redemptive plan. We see his power that he is able to execute it and achieve it. We see, that, we see the forgiveness of God that we would not know otherwise. We would not understand that God is a forgiving God unless there was a rebellious world. We would not see his grace on display. We would not see his patience for our, our sin. We would not see his justice. We would not see his love. We would not see his generosity. We see those attributes of God specifically because of the rebellious nature of mankind. And so what I'm trying to say is we see the glory of God supremely demonstrated not in that he created a world that was flawless that would never have any mistakes but we see it in that he has redeemed a broken and rebellious world the the resurrection of Lazarus is sort of an illustration of this the glory of Christ was best demonstrated not by showing up on time and preventing Lazarus's death but showing up after the fact and pulling him from the grave. And so just as Christ's glory was supremely demonstrated in that moment, so God's glory is best demonstrated not in preventing the fall of man, but in rescuing us from our own rebellion. And so we're reminded here too that in sort of these dark hours and this trouble along the way that we're not experiencing the abandonment of God, but we are experiencing opportunities for his greater glory. And Jesus, in fact, teaches us how to pray when we experience these dark hours. He says, now my soul is troubled. I, I just got to tell you, here is an invitation from Jesus that we can be honest with the Father in our prayers. You know, by the way, you're only telling God what he already knows. 
But I think we honor him when we do that with honesty and intimacy. My soul is troubled. I'm a wreck about this. I'm upset about this. I have a problem. And I'm bringing it to you, Lord. And so Jesus teaches us that this is okay. But then he goes on, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And here's the prayer. Here's the instructive prayer. Father, glorify your name. How often is that our prayer? I'm going to tell you, it's, it's not often mine. I wish it were more so the case. Because very often my prayer is simply, just give me what I want. Right? I'm pretty sure I know best, God. I mean, I've got a vantage point down here on earth. <laughs> right? Just give me what I want. Jesus teaches us and demonstrates how we ought to pray. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will do it again. And so we're encouraged, we're reassured with these words that God is consistently, steadily about his own glory. And boy, you want to have some answered prayers? Get on with glorifying God and keeping that as the supreme charge of your life. Jesus goes on to show us how pivotal the cross is here in verse 29. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus, said to, then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Now, there's a couple of things that he says here, and I, to be honest with you, they're a little bit diff to, difficult to reconcile because, first of all, he speaks about sort of the cross being, in a sense, an act of judgment here. And then later on, he will say, he will say that he has not come to judge the world, but in fact, to save the world. And so we're left with this conundrum. How do we reconcile these two things? This is a time of judgment, but I've not come to judge the world. So is Jesus contradicting himself? And in a sense, what we're learning here is that where one stands in relationship to the cross is absolutely the pivotal matter. In other words, God has drawn a line in the sand, so to speak, and he has said, it's God's way of saying, you are either for me or you're against me. If you reject the cross and Christ's sacrifice for you, you remain in your sin. You remain under God's righteous judgment and you are waiting for his wrath. If you cross the line of faith and you accept Jesus' death in your place, instead you find forgiveness, you find sonship, and you find eternal life. And so it is how we respond to this saving activity of Christ on the cross that determines whether we will respond to this light and be pulled out and be saved or whether we will remain in our default position as under the judgment of God. And so the cross is simultaneously judgment and it is also invitation because he is calling us out of this. 
There's also an urgency in Jesus' voice here. That is that we need to respond to the light of Christ right now. It's interesting, when they hear Jesus say, the Son of Man, they know that to be a messianic title. So they know he's claiming to be Messiah, and what they understand about Messiah is that he will remain. When they hear him use the phrase, lifted up, they know he's speaking specifically of crucifixion. The same way if I used the phrase that someone was going to be strung up, you would know that I was referring to a hanging. And so, it's not that they don't understand these two concepts, it's that they can't reconcile the two together, right? It's like me saying, my husband is pregnant, right? We understand an idea of a husband and we understand the idea of pregnancy, but the two don't really go together, right? That just doesn't work. And I think it's understandable here that they have some questions, especially since their expectations of Messiah have really been challenged and this caricature that they had has been smashed. But also don't lose track of all of the evidence and all of the signs and all of the ways that Christ revealed who he was and what he was doing. And so we may be a little bit sympathetic to their questions, but we can also understand the frustration of Jesus that presses them to the point of decision. Look what he says in verses 35 here. He says, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of God. Now, as I was studying this this past week, one of the things that really came to me, the questions I started asking was, why is Jesus so urgent here? I mean, in a sense, you could expect him to say, hey, guys, I know you don't get this right now, but just wait a little bit because in a couple days, it's going to be crystal clear, Right? You, you could imagine him saying, I'm going to be crucified. You're going to see the sky's going to be darkened. You're going to see me come out of the grave and raised from the dead. You're going to see me ascend into heaven. You're going to see the Holy Spirit come at Pentecost. In other words, Jesus could have, I, I, want, I wonder, what's the hurry here? Jesus could have said, it's going to be really clear in a little bit. But he presses them to a point of decision right away. I think along with them, you and I often sort of fall prey to the lie that tomorrow will be easier to follow Jesus than today. And many have held off on making a decision for Christ because it will be more convenient then. I just want to live for me now. I'll get serious about Jesus later. The prideful nature of mankind too is such that when we make a decision... We tend to look for evidence to to support the wisdom of our decision. We become stubborn about things. We become defensive about things. We don't typically become more open. We typically become more closed and more rigid. And that is why we find throughout the scripture the words that say, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think the truth we're meant to see here is this, that the longer we are in the darkness, the greater its hold upon you. The longer you are in the darkness, the more blind you become. The longer you are in the darkness, the more lost you become and the greater hold it has upon you. If I could use the illustration of an alcoholic from my aunt's life who just passed away last week as I shared with you guys. She's been through detox twice. The last time she left detox, they told her, the hospital said, your body will not survive another one of these. 
If you drink again, you're not going to survive a detox. I understand she went home that night and reached for the bottle. The longer you're in the dark, the greater its hold on you. And I would submit to you that sin is a lot more addictive than alcoholism or anything else or any substance. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And so what Jesus is teaching is that we need to respond now. We need to respond to the cross. It's pivotal, and we need to respond now. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and who does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them on the last day. For I did not speak of my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. We see three things here that I don't have the time to fully unpack, so I'm going to lay them out fairly quickly. First of all, we see that God has given us reasons to believe. If you're looking for reasons to believe, they're there. They're clear. We see this in the seven signs that Jesus demonstrated. We also see that God will ratify our unbelief. In other words, if we are hard-hearted and we reject the clear gospel and we reject the light of Christ and we stay in that posture, then God will simply say, I will give you what you want. You want life away from me, you may have it. We also see, however, that Christ came as a light to call us out of darkness. That was the purpose of his coming. And I want to leave you with a bit of an encouragement here because no doubt many of you are sitting here and there is someone on your heart, a loved one, or a family member, and you've been praying for their salvation. This is a hard message if your heart is breaking over someone who has not been walking with the Lord. But I want to leave you with this encouragement, and that is this, that God-fearing Gentiles came to inquire about Jesus. They responded to the light. Right? They came, first of all, seeing, seeing Yahweh and wanting to participate in worship, and they came to the temple during Passover, the beginnings of light. And then when they saw Jesus on the scene, they wanted to know about this guy. And they came asking, where is this Jesus? In other words, they had left sort of the, the dark corners of a godless life. And they left the dark corners of Judaism in search of Jesus. And they serve as an encouragement to us that people do respond to the light of Christ. And we need to continue to pray for them. This morning I have presented you with... Um,
the gospel of Jesus. We are all, our default position of all of us is under the wrath of God because of the sin of mankind. But God has provided a way out through Christ, through our faith in the cross, and through his work there. And so my prayer for you this morning is this, that this would be a watershed moment for your life, that this would be a moment of truth and the catalyst for dynamic change in your life. That whatever pressure has been building over time or whatever sequence of events have been unfolding, whatever God has been showing you about yourself and your need for him, that you would respond in this moment and not take one more step in darkness and in hardness of heart. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment. And I want to tell you this. I can say this with absolute certainty. The wisest thing you can do if you don't know Jesus is to surrender your life to him right now. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. So if you would bow your heads, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if this is your moment, have courage. And come to meet your Savior. God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that my heart is far from you at times. I know that I have sinned. I know that I have the guilt of sin upon me. I know that I am deserving of your righteous wrath. But I see your wisdom and your power and your goodness and your love and your grace and your mercy and that you sent your son Jesus to die in my place. That my sin would be poured into him and crucified and killed at the cross. That I might be made righteous and holy. So Father, I receive this free gift. I accept Jesus as my substitute and my sacrifice. I rejoice that I am now in the family of God, that I am a son or a daughter of yours with an inheritance to come of eternal life. Father, even as we work through that prayer, even as we work through this passage and we reconsider the light of Christ, we are thankful for we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And we say thank you for giving us what we need. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.